let me pray us in. Father God, thank you for another beautiful day and thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for your presence among us when we gather together in your name. This is a difficult and challenging time in our nation and we want to pray in your spirit and by your spirit according to your will and we want to pour out our our hearts just as you have told us to do. And so, Father God, we do that. And we pray for victory of truth uh, over lies, um, that evil would be defeated in our nation according to your word, according to the principles of your word. We stand on your word. Help your people who are called by your name, truly called by your name, to stand up and speak out and represent you well. And this is not about politics. These are spiritual issues. These are spiritual matters. And so we just ask you to um, see this through as only you can. And to help us to uh, live with whatever the outcome. Because again, this is all about you and honor and glorifying you in our lives for Christ's sake. Amen. I feel like I need to comment on a couple of things as I was praying. Just because where we are as a nation right now, the divide, the election did nothing but uh, make even more clear the divide. And personally, and someone called me out this morning on Facebook, someone that I know personally, uh, but personally for me, I'm still praying because until the process is completed, and there is a process that perhaps a lot of Americans either don't recall or don't know, that this goes through, because I'm praying against those who would steal an election uh, by underhanded or illegal means. And we have people that are looking into that. And there's a process and a system that allows you to do that. And it's not about surrendering our rights, because that's not what Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to die to self. But you see, the United States is a democracy such as it is today. And that's there was no democracy in the Bible at all. Our leaders are elected officials that work for us. They work for us. Okay? It's a different situation altogether. So we have every right to pray as I did, to stand up and speak out against uh, people who uh, spit in the face of God, hate God, hate us, and to just point them to the truth. We love them by pointing them to the truth, and the truth is that God loves them, and that love was expressed through Jesus Christ, their only hope for salvation and our only hope. So as Christians, we must continue to do that. And if the election goes the way that um, it appears to be right now on the surface, then part of that responsibility, perhaps too much of it, lay at the feet of people who consider themselves Christians and yet vote totally against the principles that God has laid out in his word. That doesn't make any sense. These are not political commentaries. These are spiritual commentaries. As a Bible teacher, as a leader in the church of God corporately, I'm just calling you out on that and asking you to consider what's up with that? How do you arrive at that? Is it prayerful consideration of the scripture and what God has taught in his word? Or is it just, is it really political? Because I'm not a political guy. But I am a biblical spiritual guy. I'm a biblical Christian, and I try to operate my own life through that and teach that and be faithful to teach that. And I will not back down from teaching that. So I think that there are too many people who are weak in their stance for that, 
whether it's pastors or Christian leaders or someone else who's afraid to speak out. We don't want to do this out of fear. We simply want to speak the truth in love that this is what the Word of God teaches. And these other things are contrary to it. So that's my comment going forward with this. I'm going to continue to pray. I encourage you to continue to pray. And we'll see what happens. We'll see where God takes us. As I said last night, this thing that stirred up some people on Facebook, God's either going to um, restore a hand of favor to our nation, or he's going to take us to the woodshed. And no one would argue that as a church, uh, many people of God need the woodshed, need the woodshed experience to bring him back around. He did that with his people Israel throughout the Old Testament. Jesus talked about that. We're going to get into some of these passages today. And that's what led to this title of this lesson, What in the World is God Doing? Because a lot of Christians are asking, what in the world is God doing? When in fact, the things that are going on and happening are because of the failures of Christians or those who call themselves Christians and not of the world. The world is lost and without hope and they're supposed to act like that. Satan the chief of all demons, the prince of the power of the air, which Jesus himself called him, is having a field day and wreaking havoc. And that's what he's supposed to do for a season and a time that's left. And I believe it's coming to an end. And I believe that all of these events point more and more toward the eschatology or end times as we move toward what we believe and hope for a rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ. But there's a lot in between that. But everything that's happening points that direction. So I'm going to tell you five things. I'm going to share five things. And we're only going to get to probably two of them today. On what in the world is God up to? And this applies to his people. So if you were born again in Christ, this message is for you. Because this is what God is doing in and for his people. I want to take the opportunity to tell you also that beginning Tuesday night, we're moving this, uh, this service time, this teaching time to Tuesday night. We're going to call it Tuesday Night Live. We're going to base it off our brand new website called OnlyJesus.Life. Love, it's getting great response. OnlyJesus.Life. There's a great story behind that URL. I won't take the time to share it now. But I hope you will join us there. And I'm going to teach this message, or pretty much the same message, to launch that new time for this ministry to teach OnlyJesus.Life. And we're going to start with this message, What in the World is Going On? But there's a website, onlyjesus.life. That's the name of the website. Go there. There's all kinds of resources. It's question-based, kind of like the Desperate Men site. It's questions-based with answers to help you think through some of these difficult times and learn how to live and remind yourselves of how much God loves us and how much he wants us to enjoy him, regardless of what's going on. And regardless of what's going on, to be the, the, the salt and light in the world that needs it so desperately. There's never been a better time for Christians to stand up and speak out, but also to represent Christ well as people are looking for answers. And we have the answer. We have the only answer. All right. What's the first one? Pruning. Pruning. Let me give you the context of this. We're going to read a first passage. is going to be in John 15. And the context is this. The, the Last Supper is over in terms of the meal. You know that Jesus, before then, he got up. Uh, he took a, a rag and a, and a bowl, and a took a towel and a bowl, and he went around, and he washed the disciples' feet. One of the, not one of the greatest act of service 
and humility that we've ever seen. The Lord God himself washing the nasty feet of the disciples. So that's what's been going on. And this uh, this part of the conversation and that events of that evening and John 15 are sandwiched between John 14 and John 16, which are on the Holy Spirit, which are on the Holy Spirit, because Jesus kept telling them, I'm leaving, which totally freaked them out. And I've talked to you that before. But that's OK, because when I leave and if I don't leave, I can't send him. But I'm sending the Holy Spirit who's going to give you the power to live all these things I've taught you because they knew from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes all the way through his teachings, they weren't difficult. They were impossible. They were impossible without the Holy Spirit, the third person of this triune Godhead, the mystery of the Trinity that we worship and love with all our heart, mind, soul, spirit, everything we've got. The Holy Spirit was coming to make these things possible, not to deliver them from the Romans, which is what the Israelites wanted, not to deliver them from that kind of bondage, but to deliver them from the spiritual bondage that we were able to have because Christ shed his blood on the cross. And the Holy Spirit would seal us as Christians, it would seal us once for all, and then give us the power and encourage us to live because it got so difficult for those Christians. All were martyred besides Judas who took his own life. We're going to see that, if not in our lifetime, we're sitting in our lifetime, just not in the United States. Trust me when I say, if God takes us to the woodshed, that could be part of it. And if you're going to be a Christian born again, a biblical Christian, you may suffer for that. We may suffer for that. We may have this taken away. I've often said, it's not a prophecy, that I could see the Bible being taken away in my lifetime and certainly in the lifetime of my children and my grandchildren. Why? Because it's hate speech. The Bible is hate speech according to people who look at it that way, according to whose minds have been blinded by Satan, it's hate speech. And, and of course they would take it away because it's not politically correct. And it calls out sin and no one wants to have their sin called out, especially those who've been deceived by Satan. So the first thing that God is doing is pruning, pruning his people. Now, you know what pruning is. We have here in Middle Tennessee, these large uh, shrubs, if you will, that grow up called crepe myrtles, crepe myrtles. And it's funny, every year in the spring, early spring, late winter, people go back and they whack them back. And I mean, they really whack them back. In fact, it's called on social media in some places, they call it crepe murder. I'll say that was kind of comical. But they cut these things way, way, way back. They cut them back. Why? Because when you cut them back and you cut off all the dead limbs and the ones that were from the year before, they will grow back even thicker and stronger and more beautiful and fuller. And that's pruning. And that's pruning. And people have been pruning things, farmers, uh, people who grow things for thousands and thousands of years because they understood that when you cut things back, it allows it to produce either more fruit, better fruit a fuller tree, all those things. And that's what this is about pruning. So let me look at, let's look at this passage, okay? Again, Jesus is speaking to them. Last supper's over. He's washed their feet. He's getting ready to head to the cross. This is on Thursday night. And so here's what we read. I'm in John 15, uh, verses one to six. Jesus said, I'm the true vine and my father 
God is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. And by the way, that word clean there means pure. They're already uh, pruned. You see, he's been doing that to them their whole time together. All three years, he's been working on pruning them once they believe that he was the Messiah. So he says, you're already pruned or clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. See, the word of God, Jesus' words prune us. They pruned his disciples. They prune you and I as disciples. Then he told them, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And again, he said, I'm the vine. And now he adds this, you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And listen to this. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And, and he called God the vine dresser, the one who's doing the pruning. Well, if we're born again in Christ, then we have been grafted into that vine. We grafted into the vine. You know, the Jews were the only chosen people. And by the way, I've said it many, many times. The United States is not some chosen nation. The nation of Israel was the only one that was a God set apart to be a holy people to themselves. Now we are as Christians, but not as a nation, as a church, a corporate church. In other words, all Christians together are the church, the body of Christ, not individual buildings or denominations we are the body of Christ, and corporately together we are his church. The nation of Israel was the pure, holy people he set aside for themselves. It did what? Blew him off, rebelled, sinned, all those things. And so now the Gentiles are being allowed to be grafted in, and the apostle Paul was sent to them. And keep in mind now, all these apostles, all these, all these disciples he's teaching were also Jews. But we've been grafted in as part of the process now of being able to abide in the vine. And so they're part of this vine. They're branches. They're branches. And we know this. If you take a branch, just pick a tree, a shrub, or anything you can get to. And if you snap, if you even pull back partially that branch and it doesn't stay in the vine and the thickness of it where the, where the nourishment comes from, the water and all the nutrients, it will wither and die. It will wither and die. Or there are some that are there and they exist, but they don't produce any fruit. It's like that fig tree story that we see when Jesus was going into Jerusalem. When it wasn't producing fruit, Jesus cursed it and it shriveled up and died. He's saying the same thing here. Look, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you abide in me, you're going to be able to have that the nutrients, the nourishment that flows through me and from me into you so that you can bear fruit like I have been. Remember, Jesus told him, greater works greater uh, works will you do than I've done with all these things. And people debate what that means. But at the end of the day, I take it literally. He said, look, greater works will you do because the Holy Spirit's coming to live in you. And he's going to be the one that helps you bear this fruit as long as what we abide in the vine. And so that's what he's talking about. We need to abide in the vine. And, and God, the vine dresser, works through the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in our lives. What kind of fruit? Well, many of us know in Galatians 5, we know those verses, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Paul goes first and talks about um, the rotten fruit that's not of God at all. He lists a number of sins there. 
which also many people hate because it's calling out sin. And then he ends that part in that chapter with 22 and 23. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and there are nine of them, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. There are nine fruit of the Spirit. There are others throughout the teaching of the New Testament. There are nine right there. Those are fruit that he would bear in our lives if we're grafted in the vine, and we want to grow in him. We want to grow in Christ. We want to bear fruit. That's part of what we're doing. We're not saved just to sit and soak in church or somewhere else or get in some holy huddle. That's the last thing it was. He said, go and make disciples. That's our job. It's not to sit here and grow in the vine and grow in the vine. You could grow in the vine as a branch and get thicker and thicker and thicker and all the foliage and stuff, but if there's no fruit, we've got a problem. That's not the kind of branches that Jesus wants. That's not what he said we need to be. And I think it points to a lot of Christians who are in many Bible studies and good churches, and they're soaking, and soaking, and soaking, take all this teaching in, and then do nothing with it. And I remember a pastor friend many years ago shared this analogy that of a sponge. He said, Christians have gotten to be too much like sponges that are full. And you know from washing your car or from doing anything with a sponge, once that sponge is full, it cannot absorb another drop. Any excess water, or liquid, whatever you've got in it, will fall away. It'll just fall off. How do you make a sponge useful again? You have to wring it out. You wring it out and you clear it of all the stuff that's in there so it can soak up more. So as Christians, we need to stop being full sponges. Let the Holy Spirit wring us out to produce more fruit. That's why we're saved. We're not saved to sit around and soak. We're saved to get out and make disciples. And church and Christians, you need to be about making disciples. We're teaching and equipping people to make disciples. This ministry has taken on a, another brand, if you will, another arm of it. Desperate Men was about making disciples of men and focus there. And then women came into it because of my teaching with homeless women at the mission. And so the Holy Spirit put on my heart this whole new idea of only Jesus.life because he's called me to be an evangelist first to the church and then to the nations. Okay. And so only Jesus.life is the evangelistic arm of this ministry and the disciple and, and desperate men remains a disciple making side. Why? Because you can't make disciples if people haven't gotten saved. We need to lead people to Christ. We need to show them the way. This is the hope. This is the only hope. I taught this over the last few weeks in a series that we did. And Jesus is the only hope for the world. And we need to share that in love, not in anger because the election didn't go our way or does go our way. That won't ultimately matter. What matters is if we're saved, are we bearing fruit? Are we being good disciples to go out and do that? And that's what he's telling them to do here. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I've learned this the hard way myself some, so it's okay for me to call out other people, whether it's pastors, teachers, missionaries, whoever. When we operate in, in our flesh, when we operate in our flesh, sometimes we're pretty good and we can accomplish a lot of things. Uh, people have built big churches operating in the flesh, not in the spirit. God's not concerned about the size of that church. God's concerned about the size of the heart within that church, that heart of people for him whether it's five or 50 or 5,000 or 50,000. He said, what matters 
is a heart for God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we have to be careful as teachers and people who pastor large congregations. It's a much more difficult thing for them not to get caught up in the pridefulness of that, to think it has something to do with them, because it does not. Personality will not last through that. We've seen many personalities that built large churches, many who have fallen away and fallen into uh, sexual immorality, idolatry, and other things, and just apostate. It happens too frequently. And you can Google it and find many, many, many people who fall in that category, men and women. And it's a very, very sad thing. It grieves the heart of God. And again, it's just a tool of Satan to destroy and tear down the church and the people who uh, make up that church. So we have to abide in the vine, have any chance of, of getting our strength to bear fruit. Verse 6 is a scary one. This is when it starts to get uh, not just interesting, but scary. And so Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch that dries up and gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Look, I've said this to you many times before, and it's the truth. And I'm working on a series about this just to make sure people understand hell. Because Jesus spoke on hell more than anything except the kingdom of God. Um, there may be one other subject in there, but Jesus, oh yeah, hell and the devil. He put those together. Why? Because he wanted to warn us of the reality that it's not some hocus pocus uh, guy with horns and a pointy tail and a, and a pitchfork. Satan is a real fierce enemy. The Bible talks about him throughout. Jesus spoke on him many times, and he talked about hell being a real place of eternal torment, everlasting suffering, one way in, no way out. And that's just reality. And people, a lot of church people don't even like that. It's like the children of Israel when they said, tell us the good things, speak the, the easy stuff for us to hear and listen. We don't want to hear this hard stuff. But Jesus repeatedly said, listen, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you bear fruit, that's a sign that you are part of the vine, that you're doing that. If not, and you're a branch that's not engrafted in, in this vine, then you will be taken, again, you'll, you'll rot, you'll shrivel up in the sense, in the natural sense here. But in the spiritual sense, you will die and you will be thrown into the fire. And he's talking about the lake of fire and he's talking about hell. Jesus spoke on that many times. I won't get into all those examples today, but you need to understand that because here he brings it up very clearly. So what is God up to? He's pruning us. He's pruning us so that we will bear more fruit. And you need to be willing to receive that pruning. Okay? You need to be able to receive it and willing to receive it and not resist it, not resist it. Listen, pruning hurts. It's a painful process, but that's okay. Because the pain is worth it if it makes us fit for the kingdom or more fit for the kingdom to bear fruit and more fruit. So that's what the pruning is all about. The second thing that God is up to is purging, purging, pruning and then purging. It's really interesting. If you look and do a scriptural search, you'll find this short phrase more than 20 times in different translations. Uh, it's an amazing short little phrase, but God repeats it many, many times, especially throughout the law as he's trying to teach his chosen nation, as he led them out of all those years of bondage in Egypt, 
And he said this, you must purge evil from you. You must purge evil from you. He said it more than a dozen times to Moses throughout the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. And as I said, you keep looking and Googling and finding things and searching your Bibles and concordances, and you will find more than 20 times you must purge evil from you. Why? Because God hates evil. God hates sin. We like to focus on the love of God, which is great, because God is love, as John said. But that love also hates sin. Why? Because it's evil. He hates evil and hates sin. doesn't hate us. God is love. God loves his creation. He created us. Now, you need to understand something. With love and grace, there's what theologians and people call the general love and the common love or common grace, which is available to all because we are his creatures in creation. Okay, But that is not the eternal saving love and grace of God. That's only expressed through Jesus Christ. That's where it bifurcates. And that's where people have a real problem with it. Everybody wants the love of God. God loves us. God is love. That's great. There are churches that have formed all around that, but they only take the attributes of God that they like and they agree with, and they don't take all the other attributes. And, and, it, and it's you can't do that. It's called um, teaching the whole counsel of God, the integrity of who God is, his character, his nature. And it is love. It is love. But it's all these other things go along with it because you say, well, how can God love people and then send them to hell? That's always comes up. And it's not it's not true. Number one, it's not how it happens. We don't have time to get into that. But there's just this balance between the love of God, the anger of God, his wrath, his mercy, his justice, his grace, all those things that come together. If you took the time to study them, you'd find that out for yourself. And if you just sat down and examined how that works within your own family, if you have children and how you deal with and discipline them and how you love them, sometimes I'm sure they would say, well, daddy, that doesn't look like love. That doesn't feel like love. And you'd have to try to explain to them, but you could not because they're children who could not understand it. And sometimes that's the way it is here. So let's keep going. God purges us. He says, I want the evil away from you. And he spent all this time throughout the Old Testament trying to purge the evil from his people. What happened? Well, what happened was they didn't let him do it. He was unable to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish through them because they were so stubborn. They wanted their way. They chose their own ways over God's, and it ended up getting them destroyed as a nation. The 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the Assyrians, and then in 586 B.C., the final onslaught of the Babylonians, when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in the temple, they're gone. They're gone. And so for more than 2,500 years, there's no nation of Israel. God's chosen people, the one nation that he wanted to set aside for himself, was gone. There was no sovereign nation at all. And they were captured, enslaved, in servitude, in bondage, wandering around until 1948 after World War II when God set in motion the things that will trigger in times, and that is the nation of Israel coming back into Palestine. Well, it all happened because of this purging of evil that God wanted to do, and they resisted. Now, when we cross over from Malachi 4 into Matthew 1, and we get into first the, the birth of Jesus' story, 
the very first story, the, very, the next story is John the Baptist. And in Matthew 3, he says this, John the Baptist speaking, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, isn't that interesting? This is Matthew 3, the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. The first words out of his mouth that were the first words out of Jesus' mouth was this. I came to call sinners to repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was all about calling them out for sin. People don't want to be called out for sin today. Our nation needs to be called out for sin. Sins of those who are lost, we're supposed to act like that. Sins of those who say that they are saved and born again, may or may not be. And those of us who are truly born again, our own sin, we need to be called out to repent. We need to repent of that sin. Let's keep going. So John said, let me and I'll repeat again, the ax is already at the root of the trees. Everyone that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Remember, that's exactly what Jesus said in one of his last uh, conversations with the disciples. And as for me, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming, meaning Jesus, who was already born and there, is mightier than I am. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember, he sent the Holy Spirit and those tongues of fire came on those men at Pentecost. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge or clear the threshing floor. He'll gather wheat into the barn and he'll burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. There's that unquenchable fire. He's talking about hell. That's the unquenchable fire. Now, what this analogy of the winnowing fork in his hand, you may have seen it if you've been around old farms or you've gone on tours and stuff and seen how people use these. They look like pitchforks, but the, the um, tangs or whatever you call the, the spikes in them, I think the tangs, are wide apart so that you can reach down and grab a great big bundle of wheat and you threw it up in the air because the chafe would blow off, the part that was useless would blow away, and the wheat, the kernels, would settle onto the threshing floor. You throw, you throw it up in the air with this winnowing fork, and the wind blows off the bad stuff, the chafe, and the good stuff, the kernels. And what he's talking about, those who are saved fall down and are on the threshing floor, and the chafe, those who are not saved. And he uses this example a number of times, Jesus did throughout Scripture, and especially in the New Testament when he's teaching about this wheat and chafe and the, the sheep and goats. I've shared that with you before. But that's what this analogy is, this winnowing fork. He's coming. It's right now. He's coming. His, it's in his hand. Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance as well. Well, that winnowing fork analogy is applied to Jesus. It's in his hand. And he will be the one who thoroughly purges the threshing floor, cleans it, gathers his wheat in his barn, meaning heaven, and burns up the chafe with unquenchable fire, which is hell. Now, there's two analogies, two examples where Jesus purged the temple. He purged the temple. The big temple, it was Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was this temple was rebuilt, we know, in the time of um, Nehemiah, before the Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah went back a number of years later to build a wall around that. Wasn't as good a temple. People looked at it who had seen Solomon's temple and were just distressed, but it was a temple nonetheless. And then over the years, believe it or not, Herod and other pagan rulers added on to it and built on to it, hoping that it would uh, help the Jews stay um, submissive to their rule. And so this was really called Herod's temple to some extent. So anyway, but Jesus went in the temple. Uh, this was the time on Palm Sunday. This is the second time. 
on Palm Sunday, he's come now, he's come to Jerusalem for the last time, he's come to die. And the first thing he does, what does he do? He goes on Palm Sunday into the temple. And it says in, in Matthew, I'm reading Matthew 21, uh, 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den or den of thieves. My house should be called a house of prayer. Now, I want you to understand here, this is not passive peacemaking. All the words that people think must accompany us. Jesus was outraged at what was going on in the house of God, and he did something about it. He flipped over the tables. He called them out to their face. He called sin, sin. And what he did could not be called being a peacemaker or I'm meek and gentle. Those are the only two words he described himself. Listen, you can be meek and gentle and humble and then so righteously angered by people that are defiling the word of God, in this case, the house of God, that you do something about it and you speak out against it. That's exactly what Jesus did here. He purged the temple. He drove them out. In the other example, you remember he, he made a cord out of things, a whip, and started whipping and throwing it around and driving people out. Driving people out. Yet he was the most humble and gentle and peaceable man that ever lived. You have to understand what those words mean in their application. And here's a great example of what we as Christians have to look at this and say, wait a second, this isn't right. This isn't right. And we need to speak to sin, speak into sin just like Jesus did. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 wrote this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? We are, if you're born again in Christ, we are the temple of God. We're born again in him. We're his temple. This body is not my own. It's not my own. And I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me these two passages together because we're talking about Jesus throwing out the evil from the temple. And then Paul talking about, look, this temple, my temple, your body, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I need to take care of it and honor it. Because it is God's. It is just like I am dressing up and cleaning up the temple to go and worship God. My body is a temple of God and it should be a place of worship. And so let's start right there and think about that, Christian. Is your body that way? Have you been purged of the evil and the sin of your life? Have you repented and confessed your sin to clear out all the evil as Jesus did? As Paul talks about, this is not your own. This is not your own. This is the, the Lord God. This is the abode of the Holy Spirit in us who works in and on us because we have Christ. We've received the Spirit of Christ in our hearts through salvation, you see. We're God's property. You know, the old Kirk Franklin song and that group he was with, um, I love some of those great worship songs. They're called God's Property was the name of the people that were the, and the backup group there. We are God's property. We're not our own. Our body is his temple. It's not our own. We need to treat it that way. I work with and I'm around a lot of men and women whew, who have treated their bodies in rough ways, in rough ways. Addictions of every kind you can think of. Um, it's just really, really sad and tragic. And so you try to encourage them. And look, this is the body. This is your body is a temple of Christ and get the healing that you need to move through that so you can present to him a living and holy sacrifice, you see. That's what we want to do. 
That's what we want to do. But we may not have the addictions that some of these people have. We not, may not be incarcerated. Um, but we have issues in our own lives that are just as great, just as evil, just as sinful in the eyes of God. And we need to confess those so that he can purge us of the evil. The Holy Spirit will purge us so that we can worship in truth and love and we can cleanse it all out. We don't hold any hate for someone else. I don't hate any other political party. If, if, um, if, if it's whoever gets elected, somebody I don't care for, didn't vote for, just couldn't support all the stuff going on there. Listen, I want to be purged of the evil that is sin. There's things like that that are not sin. They're clearly biblical and, and you guided biblically to, to think, reason, and speak that way. And then there's things that are just Walter Spires and my opinions and I think this and I think that. What I think doesn't matter. What, what God says matters. What the Word of God teaches matters. So I need to be purged in my own heart and mind. Purge those thoughts. So God, purge those lustful thoughts. Purge those evil thoughts. Purge those sinful thoughts. Purge those hateful thoughts. Cleanse my heart. Clear it out because I need to represent Jesus Christ no matter what the outcome is. And I can't do that with a heart full of Walter Spires and a mind full of sinful thoughts. I can't do it. So I just want to close with these questions. I mean, is your temple... Your body, your heart, your mind you used to glorify God or you glorifying man with it. You're glorifying yourself. You need to ask yourself that question. Is God glorified in who I am and what I'm doing with, with what he's given me and who he's made me? And then is it a house of prayer? We, we need to be praying a lot more. We need to be praying a lot more. And we pray across the board and everything. I told you what I'm praying for as it relates to this election process. I am. I'm praying for that because Jesus said, you pray for anything you want to pray according to the will of God. Bring it on. Bring everything. And I am. So I'm not going to listen to people who say, oh, you shouldn't do that because it's over and give. That's nonsense. I'm going to pray for anything the Holy Spirit puts in my heart to pray for. I am. The things that I think of, I'm going to pray for. And God in his sovereignty is going to answer that prayer one way or the other. He's God. He's sovereign. I'm not. But I'm going to keep praying. And you need to also. You need to keep praying. Whatever it is in you in your life. Do you need healing? Have you lost hope? Someone in your life, a family member. Whatever it is, there's nothing too small to bring to the Lord. There's nothing too great that he cannot answer and do. Greater things, Jesus said, we would do. And then again, we just have to be real careful about being contaminated by the world. Listen, we live in a world, and our nation, it's full of evil. It's full of evil. Full of evil people that are possessed or influenced under the power of the prince of the air, which is Satan and the demonic forces. They're real. Absolutely real. There's no... Hocus pocus on that. If God is real and Jesus is real and the Holy Spirit's real and Satan's real and demons are real. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus casts out a bunch of them or else they're making that stuff up. And it's all a bunch of fairy tale stories. It's not. It's not. But what we need to do as Christians, and again, this message is for Christians. If you're born again in Christ, we need to be allowing him to prune us so we bear more fruit and purge us so that we are made the holy vessels that he wants to have, because that's what it's going to take to change our world, beginning with our nation. For Christ's sake, amen. God bless you.